0: Welcome to the Scones and Homes Book Club with your host, Librarian Anna. This is your monthly invitation to get comfy, grab your highlighters, and dive into a new book every month. This podcast is part of the Librarian Anna Collective, which is an online community dedicated to the liturgy of everyday coziness. You can learn more about it over at thelibrariananna.wordpress.com. Now, go grab your current cup of cozy and let's jump into this month's episode of the Scones and Homes Book Club. Happy Book Club Monday, dearlings. It is so good to be back with you this month. If you've been following me over on Patreon, then you are well aware that I've been taking the entire month of May off as my family and I have been getting settled into our new house. And while that break has been utterly amazing, I'm so excited to jump back into creating content for all of you. Starting with this month's book club episode. The Scones and Tom's book club pick for the month of May is The Forest of Stolen Girls by June Herr. This is a young adult historical mystery novel set in 1400s Korea. In this novel, we follow Min Hwani, the eldest daughter of the great detective Min. When our story begins, we find Hwani on a boat en route to Jeju Island in search of her father. Seven years ago, Hwani and her younger sister Maywal were found unconscious close to her murder scene and were considered prime witnesses, though it was then found that Hwani's memories of the incident had been wiped out completely. And soon after, she and her father left for the mainland, leaving her sister behind. A year prior to the start of our novel, Wani's father had left for Jeju Island, believing that the case from seven years ago and a new case of 13 missing girls were connected. Unfortunately, he never returned. So, we follow Wani as she follows her father's footsteps in an attempt to solve the case, repair her relationship with her estranged younger sister, and find her father. On the way, we learn that things may not be what they seem, even to the most trained of eyes. I fell in love with June Hur's debut novel, The Silence of Girls, when it released in 2020, and I have been so anxious to start this one at just the right time. But before we get in, let's hear from the sponsor of this episode, Anchor. The Forest of Stolen Girls has been rated PG-13 for a teen to young adult audience. In this novel, we have mild depictions of thematic violence, poisonings, some intense, though not necessarily graphic depictions of death, parental abuse, kidnapping with the intent of sex trafficking, and allusions to the rape of the trafficking victims. While this book is not overly graphic in any way, it does deal with some hard stuff. So, if your teen or t- if you're tween or teen is looking at this book to read, make sure to be there for an open conversation if they need it. And as, al- as always, read with care. Have you ever held off reading a book because you were so excited to read it, and by the time you finally got around to it, it wasn't as amazing as you expected to be? That's kind of how I felt about this month's pick. I ended up rating The Forest of Stolen Girls a 6.43 on the pile scale, which equates to a 3 out of 5 stars. Even though this is not a second book in a series, I found The Forest of Stolen Girls had a second book syndrome for me. I'll go into more detail in a bit, but while I absolutely loved June Hursts prose and the atmosphere of the story, like, honestly guys, the plot alone kept me in my chair reading it from start to finish until 1am, the character development of Honey and her sister just fell very flat for me. And honestly, I never got to a point in the story where I cared what happened to them. If character development is not a priority for you or the reader in your life, this might be one to definitely check out because the plot and interconnected subplots were absolutely amazing. Welcome to Down the Rabbit Hole, the segment of the show where I do a deep dive into the story behind the story of our monthly novel and give you the official warning that this podcast is dark and full of spoilers. So if you're not into that, then this is your invitation to stop listening and go pick up the book. I started my research for today's episode by reading the historical note in the back of the book, and this served as my jumping off point for today's rabbit hole. I do want to preface this just a bit by saying that I am in no way an expert on Korean history or the language. So if and probably when I get something wrong, I do want to go ahead and apologize and ask that you feel free to email me or leave me a comment with the correct information so I can continue to learn and do better. Now we all know that human trafficking and slavery in some form or another has existed forever. After all, we've seen it in the world's oldest pieces of art, literature, and historical accounts. But personally, I never quite understood how prevalent it was worldwide and across historical lines. I have heard of the Japanese comfort women and girls that had been taken from their homes during World War II and sold into sexual slavery by the Imperial Japanese Army. But I never knew that those women and girls from Japanese-occupied territories and countries were also taken. And that there was a practice of offering tribute women, and it was happening across the world, spanning as far back as the Mongol era, if not further. During the 13th century, the Goryo dynasty Krio was controlled as a vassal state by the Mongol Empire, and they were required to send young maidens, horses, furs, and other treasures to the empire as tribute. And this practice, unfortunately, lasted through the Joseon era dynasty, after Korea became a vassal state to Ming China. And they were then required to pay that tribute to the emperor of China to continue living in relative peace. It absolutely blows my mind that these women and girls could just be taken from their homes like that. In some cases, leaving no one to care for their families. In her novel, Jean Hur shows some of the more drastic attempts at pa- parents saving their daughters from their fate. I don't know how commonplace it was at the time, but honestly, it isn't hard to imagine a desperate parent doing anything to keep their child from suffering. Unfortunately, as shown in the case of So it was also common for girls who did manage to escape or otherwise return home to be ostracized because of their purity being taken away. Regardless of whether they were able to escape with their virginity intact, they were often the left on the outskirts of their villages and their homes and sometimes run out of town completely. Overall, I found this historical context for the novel not only gave the Forest of Stolen Girls a strong sense of time, but also place. And I felt like it really made Juani in particular stand out against the crowd, as even though she was well aware of the dangers that being a girl in this society posed, she was still willing to do what she could could to solve the crimes and her father's disappearance. Next up, I really want to take a look at the father daughter relationships we get to glimpse in. Throughout this novel. Primarily, we have Detective Min and his two daughters, Hwani and Meiwol, but we also get to meet Village Elder Moon and his daughter, Chi who is about to enter the Crown Princess selection. We also meet Convict Beck and his daughter, Gahi, whose relationship showcases some of the more extreme sides of a complicated father daughter relationship. So let's start with Convict Beck and Gahi. When we first meet comic Beck, all we know is that he's known for being shady as hell, and he publicly disfigured his own daughter to keep her from being considered as a tribute. When confronted with the truth of what happens to the girls who are taken as tributes, it's hard to begrudge him for doing anything to prevent his daughter from suffering that fate. Until we later learn that he had abused his wife before her death and was considered an abusive father in addition to his other shady activities. Starting on page 108, we get this exchange between Gahi and Juani. Do you love your father? It took a moment to realize it was I who asked the question. I quickly added, you don't need to answer that. Whether Gahi loved her father or not had nothing to do with the investigation, and everything to do with how guilty I would feel once Convict Beck was locked up in the prison block. Gahi had not entered a single word. I thought she wouldn't answer And then she replied in a small voice. I used to believe that I loved him. And then I grew up. She pushed aside a branch. My father did all he could to provide for me. And whenever I think of this, I feel gratitude. And beat myself for it. I also remember all of his dark deeds. But when I think of him as a criminal, I can't help but remember that he skipped his meal so I could have a full belly. The weight of her answer hung heavy around me as we continued through the quiet forest. Father had once written in his journal that no one was completely good, just as no one was completely bad. I hadn't fully understood his words until Comic back. As children, it's hard to understand why our parents do things the way that they do, especially when their choices are causing us harm. As adults, our feelings tend to become nuanced, and we can at least say that for at least most of us, Our parents just did the best that they could with what they had and what they knew. It doesn't excuse the behavior or minimize the trauma that resulted, but it at least allows us to register that our parents are flawed human beings like the rest of us. The second set of father-daughter relationships I'm ready to look at is the comparison between how Detective Min and how he interacted with Wani and May Even though I am only a parent of one and she's still quite small, I cannot fathom doing what Detective Min did to Maywall, especially after the girls were found unconscious in the forest. I love that we get to see the sibling rivalry from Helani's point of view, but also see her get slapped with the reality that even though she was the favorite, her father still made some pretty shitty choices because he's human. That isn't an easy pill to swallow, and we have- See her have to deal with the fallout of her father's choice to play favorites, even if he supposedly left Maywell behind for her own good. Honestly, I think my biggest complaint about this novel is that we didn't also get Maywell's perspective. We got so many glimpses into her emotional journey from just being the troublemaker and the one left behind to learning that she really was loved by her father, even though he had neglected her for so long due to his own guilt. But we never really have to go in depth with them because everything was from Juani's point of view. In a final example of fatherly pride and love gone horribly, horribly wrong, we have Village Elder Moon and his daughter Chewan. Seven years before the start of the story, Village Elder Moon makes a deal with the emissary. First, to keep his daughter from t- getting taken as a tribute and then afterwards to start providing other high-ranking officials with replacements for their daughters, as long as they cast favor for Chae in the Crown of Selection. What may have originally been desperation for the love of his daughter ultimately became warped and twisted in a quest for power and favor among the elites. I did find Chae character to be very interesting and wish that we had learned more of her and the extent of her knowledge and involvement before her end. We see her a little bit when she makes choices that allowed Juani to escape, but she's also the one who poisoned Juani in the first place. So is she entirely innocent in all of this? Is she just working on her father's word? But we never get to know. Now, before we continue with our chat, I do want to tell you about two amazing podcasts that have much more to say on the subject of Asian culture and entertainment. Found yourself curious about the whole K-pop scene, but don't know where to start? Or were you super into it for a while like me, but then fell off the follow train, and now you have no idea who all these new groups are? Then you need to check out Bingo Choom and K-pop tunes wherever you get your podcast. Best friends Raina and Lacey talk about a plethora of topics surrounding Korean media including a new segment these days that focuses on some of the newest K-dramas available. Check out Bingo Tomb and K-Pop tunes available wherever you get your podcasts. The month of May has been Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month, and there are book lists all over the internet highlighting books by Asian and Pacific Islander creators. But there's so many books and so little time, so one resource to- I've really been appreciating all year long for learning about books that I may not have seen on your typical AAPI list is Books and Boba. Books and Boba is a book club and podcast dedicated to spotlighting books written by authors of Asian descent. Every month, hosts Marvin Yue and Rare Are You pick a book by an Asian or Asian American author to read and discuss on the podcast. In addition to book discussions, they also interview authors and cover publishing news, including book deals and new releases. You can check out Books and Boba wherever you get your podcasts. Now back to the show. The last thing I want to look at with this month's pick is the theme of the weight of the world that is prominent throughout the novel. Starting on page 200, we get to see Magistrate Hung and Huani having this conversation, and eventually he says, well, the world is just unfair and ju- unjust. We live in a world where hardship crushes those who are deserving of better, where obstacles line the path of those who try to do good. And All the while, the path clears easily for those that have evil in their heart. No matter how hard you strive to fight evil, nothing will change. Absolutely nothing at all. The sooner you learn to accept that, the easier your life will become. And Juani, of course, goes on to say, it's like, you're not wrong, but my father always told me to at least be one one person who is fair and just in a world of unjust and unfairness. So then he then goes to say, "Do you know what happens when a man realizes that all he does makes no difference?" He asked. He spoke of my worst nightmare. I imagined all of my efforts to find father wasted. I imagined leaving Jeju with the investigation unfinished. The answer is I'd risk my life trying to find left abandoned. The girl is still missing, with more yet to disappear. No. I confessed, I don't know. A deadly sense of futility settles deep in his bones, an exhaustion that douses even the brightest flame. That is what I learned, Mr Smith. I found that bad things happen to good people, that the villagers be ungrateful no matter what, and that the corrupt always win. He poured himself another bowl of wine, gulped it down, and laughed as a haunted look clouded his eyes. They always win. In his whispered words, I could almost see his years unfold before me, the years trying to do what was right. Perhaps he tried to guard the villagers from the Woku pirates and the king's heavy demands for tribute. For horses, seafood grains, fruits, meats. And perhaps, in his fervor to be just and fair, he had lost too many allies. Perhaps the villagers still shook their fists at him in spite of all of his efforts. Talk about a punch to the gut in this in this scene and honestly we get to see even though this happens like honestly past the halfway point in the book we really get to see that line kind of thread throughout the novel we see it when detective min leaves for the mainland leaving his youngest daughter behind due to belief that her gifts would cause her harm if she's taken away from jeju We see it with the chief magistrate when he has to choose between taking care of his people or playing the political games of the upper class. We even see it with Village Outer Moon, even though I hate his guts. um, Because he was trying to do right by his family to begin with. Even at the expense of someone else's family. But... Even Juani herself has to learn to bear that weight of her decisions to follow the case and try to solve it. But then once she solves one, her eyes are open to all the other crimes and unsolved mysteries of her home. It isn't easy caring about a community, no matter what your role in it is. And when you're actually doing something about it, it never seems to be enough for yourself or the people that you're trying to help. And that just kind of goes through... The novel, and it's almost like a sense of futility that I felt in the novel, but also very hopeful, especially because near the end, we see that Hwani is staying. She's staying home with her sister. She's staying home in Jeju, and make kind of making that choice to move forward, and. This isn't the very last line in the book, but that hope is kind of shown in this line on 359 where it goes, We had lost so much on this journey, yet I noticed how the sky seemed a pure, brilliant blue, trees below the hill a deeper green. Grief had carved out a valley in us, allowing a warm breeze to pass through, a warmth that made the rustling grass and the twittering birds sound like music, and the land under my feet feel like fire. And it just, things will never be the same for Hamani and the village because there will always be something else. There will always be some other tragedy somewhere. And even in our own world, even in our own like society these days, there's always another tragedy. There's always more corruption and it's almost impossible to bear the weight of it. But we just do the best we can, and we keep going, and we fight for what's right, and we keep ourselves on a straight and narrow path, even when it's hard. Okay, I'm going to start stop rambling, and now it's time for the adventurous light. This is the segment of the show where I get to recommend some books that I would pair with our monthly pick. Some of these books I read, and some of these I have not, but I plan on adding to my never-ending TBR list as soon as possible. Okay, I said I wanted a book about henno-divers, and I found one. My first suggestion to read in companion with The Forest of Stolen Girls is The Mermaid from Jeju by Sumi Han. This adult historical fiction novel is said to be a beautiful coming-of-age story that commingles a multi-generational family saga, legends, a heart-wrenching love story, ghostly hauntings, and a tumultuous national history. In this novel, we follow Go Junja, the latest successful deep-sea diver in a family of strong henyo. When she takes her mother's place on the annual family trip up the mountain, she meets and falls in love with a young man, but then returns home only to see her mother take her last breath doing a dive in her daughter's place. We then follow Junja through her grief and then through her life as the political climate in the Korean Peninsula is sent to even greater upheaval. This compelling tale sounds absolutely magical and I cannot wait to read it. Next, I just want to highlight anything by Linda Sue Park. She has a number of amazing medieval Korean stories in her catalog of novels, picture books, poetry, and anthology contributions. But the one that I remember the most is called A Single Shard. I read this novel as a middle schooler myself during a battle of the books competition. So this 2002 Newbery Award winner follows Tree Ear, a young orphan boy who lives under a bridge near the potter's village. One day, he sees Master Potter Min creating a beautiful piece of pottery and starts to dream of a better life for himself where he's creating his own pottery. During an unauthorized visit, Tree Ear accidentally breaks one of the pieces of pottery and ends up indebting himself to the Master Potter. Over his time as... Master Potterman's Apprentice, Trier is sent to take his master's pottery to the king's court and ends up on a journey that will change his life forever. It has been quite a long time since I've read this, but I remember loving this book so much and being absolutely swept up into the story and being heartbroken at its end, especially when I learned that it was a standalone novel and that my local library at the time didn't have anything else by Linda Sue Park. I highly recommend and I have it on my list to reread when my daughter's a little bit older. My last suggestion is yet another middle grade novel and it's a series that I loved very dearly as a child and would probably recommend to anyone looking into murder mysteries but are very put off by the gruesome and graphic ones in the adult and white market right now. The writing style of this is definitely geared towards an older middle grade or younger teen audience, and I will say that there is at least one content warning for talk of seppuku, otherwise known as Japanese virtual suicide, that was very common during the samurai era. However, this novel is very well researched, and it's not gory or overly graphic in the slightest. And this pick is The Ghost in the Tokaido Inn by Dorothy and Thomas Hubler. This Edgar Allan Poe Award finalist follows Seke, a merchant's son during the Warring States era, who, like many young men at the time, dreamed of becoming a samurai. When a rare jewel is stolen at the Takaido Inn, where Seke and his father are staying on their way to Edo, Seke is recruited by Judge Uka to assist in the crime-solving as a witness and as an apprentice. This novel is well-researched, like I said, and it's very well presented, and the pacing very rarely suffers at the expense of the culture explanations highly recommend this one. I think it's like three or four books. Just read them all. They're great. All right, my dearling friends, it is just about time to say goodbye for this episode. But before I do, I would love to announce our book club pick for the month of June. Next month, we are picking up from Twinkle with Love by Sandhya Menon. Now, you may know Sandhya Menon from her books, When Diplomat Rishi and Of Curses and Kisses, which was a Paper and Glam Book Club pick of September, 2021. But from Twinkle with Love has been teasing me from my bookshelves with its beautiful blue and pink cover with the promise of a summer romance. In this adorable romantic comedy, we join Twinkle Mira, an aspiring filmmaker who dreams of telling her stories on the silver screen. As Melissa Hill, another film geek approaches her about making a film for the summer festival, it's absolutely too good to be true. through letters to her favorite filmmakers, we follow Twinkle's hijinks as she starts getting emails from mystery boy N, who she's convinced is her long-term crush, ready to start their movie-worthy romance. But then there's Sahil, who may not be as resistible as she thought. This book navigates big truths about friendship, family, and the unexpected places love can find you, and I'm absolutely here for it. I really hope this next season of Reading Together brings you as much joy as this past season has brought me, and as a thank you to those who have been hanging out with me here and over on Patreon this past season, the Summer Reading Guide, which reveals the entire season of Book Club Picks, is going live on the Patreon tomorrow exclusively for patrons. So if you're interested, join me over at patreon.com slash Anna for exclusive downloads, videos, podcast episodes, and more. If you've enjoyed this episode, please rate and review wherever you get your podcasts. You can also become a monthly supporter of the podcast over at anchor.fm slash scones and tomes book club for as little as $1 a month. I've so enjoyed our time together today and I just want to say thank you for listening in and until next time, stay cozy.